to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. So much has been said and continues to be said about the current COVID-19 situation. And while we are faced with so much uncertainty and forced to adapt even in that uncertainty, I wanted to just take the time to just give a shout out to all of you in the industry who have kept going. There have been some fantastic and amazing examples of people just getting on with it all, whether that's just randomly starting Zoom catch-up calls for people in their industry to connect or jumping headfirst into esports and seeing how that's going to work for them, maybe on a longer-term scenario, or even finding ways to keep things going and strengthening relationships with their sponsors and rights holders. We really do work in a great industry, so well done so far. Now, many of you have had to deal with managing events and making decisions on cancelling, postponing or pivoting those events and some of you have events on the horizon where a decision will need to be made very soon. Chris Bayless is President and CEO of the Sponsorship Collective but also a founder of the Partnership Conference held annually in Canada and which was meant to be held around about this time. However, like so many of you, Chris and his business partner for the conference had to decide whether they were going to cancel the event, postpone the event or pivot. Ultimately, the decision to postpone the event was made, but Chris joins us in the show to talk in great detail about how they came to that decision and worked through all of the elements and how they've now gone above and beyond in what they have and will continue to deliver for their partners for that event. Chris always has great advice and definitely goes into great detail to help you learn and he'll join us later on in the show. I'm Daniel Oyston and welcome to episode 83 of Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening in as we all continue to work through things. I'm excited because I have a shout out for this episode. Ian Chalmers, commercial manager at the Financial Times, got in contact through LinkedIn and he wrote, Daniel, I started listening to your podcast just over three years ago when I was leaving Tasmania in Australia to hunt a job in sports sponsorships in London. However, ended up working in business events and just wanted to say the recent episode was a great insight into what's happening with our events at the Financial Times as well. Thanks for getting in touch, Anne, and I hope you are well and glad you enjoyed the last episode. We've had loads of really great and, and positive feedback on that episode. And listeners, if you have haven't caught that episode yet, be sure to go back and listen to it because James Earl from Fladgate Lawyers in London talks about how to work through contracts during a crisis. As I said, also focusing on events in a crisis in this episode is Chris Bayless and we'll hear from him later on in the show. And I think the two latest episodes complement each other really well. But before we hear from Chris, Daniel Collier-Hill, Corps' commercial director, APAC, joins us to discuss his latest blog, COVID-19, sponsorship, what's now and what's next. Here's Daniel. Daniel Collier-Hill, welcome back to the show. There's a huge amount of content currently circulating our social feeds and our inboxes and, and just permeating our conversations. We were talking about it before we hit the recording button describing the impacts of COVID-19 on brands and agencies and rights holders specifically for for our podcast listeners because that's our world and in general I think the right phrase to use is sheer carnage and there's going to be and there has been all sorts (laughs) of reactions and responses some are really really short-sighted or narrow-viewed 
just dealing with the immediate. This is what we need to do. Some of them are much longer term. We were talking about an example before we hit the record button again about people looking at trying to plan their competitions out across the end of the year and, and what the different permeations could possibly be with, with very little uncertainty. So in your latest blog, you've drawn out some of the common reactions and broken them down into the short, the medium, and then those that are focused on the long term. Let's kick off with the short term where you've first off identified remaining loyal to fans. I'm going to correct you, remaining relevant to fans, but yeah, I mean, immediate short term. First of all, we've got a battle, sort of all things Tiger King, Joe Exotic, MJ in the last dance. I mean, that's that's the first thing that content's got to get past. But I mean, it... The first one, yeah, it remaining relevant to people. So as a sports tragic, this is a really hard concept for me to swallow. I can't remember a time in my life where there hasn't been some sort of live sport to watch, whether I'm a fan of it or not. And as we were talking before, as international and domestic restrictions continue to develop and change and shift, brands and rights holders are turning to easy to execute activities that allow them to you know, stay somewhat connected to their audience, um, whether it be you know, really cheesy branded Zoom background, athlete at home content, the archive to help us relive the, the good old days. There's a stack of stuff going out. But, you know, you think F1 launched a, a virtual Grand Prix series, EPL players are live streaming um, video games of themselves. Leighton Orient hosted a, a global esports tournament. It's creative. Being creative is going to be king in staying relevant to fans i'd agree with you remaining relevant to fans is 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 key and it becomes harder the longer this goes on because we're trying to hold our fans attentions and more digital content emerges and plays into that narrative doesn't it yeah absolutely and that's nice little cheesy segue into to number two and that's you know competing for our attention is more digital content and, and more digital strategy emerges. I was chatting to a couple of brands um, here in APAC the other day, and it's everyone seems to be on the same page that content distribution and scheduling rules have literally been thrown out the window and they're a bit of a free-for-all at the moment. But with that explosion of new content across social feeds, both engagement and consumption rates have you know, naturally skyrocketed. However, I think despite the rise in AI and virtual reality experiences, documentaries, interviews, competitions. Brands and rights holders still need to deliver a specific message to a specific audience group that either educates them or connects them with that brand's products or services. Brands and rights holders really need to embrace that sort of modern, flexible digital strategy that enables them to compete for a fan's attention on multiple channels at the same time. I was reading, I can't remember exactly where I saw it for the first time, but it was a, a, in a recent conversation John Shea, Octagon's global president of marketing and events, summed it up, you know, in, in my eyes perfectly that there's still opportunities for both brands and rights holders out there. It's now just about finding the right message for the right audience, delivering the right message through the right content on the right channel at the right time. Really, has never been so important to marketing budgets, um, which I'm sure you can appreciate as a mar- as a marketer yourself. That, that- oh, well, I mean, the listeners the listeners can't see, but, I'm, but I am nodding and smiling vigorously because it's the sort of things that as a marketer, I tell people all the time, marketing is about finding people with a need, getting them to trust you. And so your job is to get the right information to the right people to the right time. And so that has always been the goal, but it's so much more pointed now. Yeah. And I think 
and, and this is my personal opinion, I think the skill of being able to shorten that time between concept creation and execution of an idea or a campaign is probably going to be a really sought-after skill to have um, on, on both Brightholder and brand side. So considering that, we're going to have to restructure some systems and some processes to be able to account for that change. And I'd, I'd add to that point about shortening the time from idea generation through to execution. Now is a great time to be practicing that and trying to execute things quickly because, and this is my personal view, I think people are a little bit more lenient on the mistakes that you might make considering the situation. If this was all normal business as usual and you executed something that wasn't quite perfect, people would be highly critical because you should be doing a better job. But here, I think there is going to be more leniency from our audiences to try things, to see how they go, to trial them and then refine on them as we go. But we do need to restructure some systems and processes to be able to account for and then support that change and enable people to be able to do it. Yeah, and to be honest, this is the non-sexy stuff, but arguably the most important, and, and I can confidently say that given where Core Software sits in the, the overall sports biz and sponsorship worlds. But you, know, you look at, with the reduction in, in staffing and resourcing, seeing a total mixed bag of lollies. Uh, some organizations are spending time consolidating their processes to ensure maximum value, whilst others are... You know, in my eyes, taking a step backwards and slashing costs and falling back to, you know, pre-technology ways. It might be really difficult to articulate in a board report or an exec report, but there's an immediate challenge to ensure that brands and rights holders are using the right systems and processes to work through this pandemic in tech language and, and CRM side. Basic CRM functions aren't going to help. Marketing automation, single customer views, a dynamic or live reporting are going to go a long way in helping us come out of this in still a good shape. And it you know, probably comes back to your point that now's the time to, to change certain things, but you can't try it unless you've got the right foundation set to start with. Agreed. So in the short term, we're looking at remaining relevant to fans, competing for fans' attention as more digital content emerges and restructuring systems and processes to account and, and support that change. That's the short term. Let's pivot and i'm doing the air quotes but let's pivot to the medium term because i know you love a good pivot when i was writing this blog uh, literally uh, all i could think of was ross from friends yelling at chandler to pivot as they're, they're trying to move that couch up the flight of the stairs and if you don't know that scene uh, google it it's highly entertaining but i mean depending on where you are we're roughly sort of four to five months um into covid19 and, and whilst the remainder of 2020s really uncharted territory for all of us, the ability for strategies to pivot and execute accordingly is crucial. And so is our effort and, and understanding of, of the contracts that we've created. And, and this is probably a really sticky point for a couple of listeners. And and the last episode of the, the podcast that you guys did was really, really, really good. We had a lot of feedback on that um, in APAC and the UK as well. But it appears sort of widely accepted that you know, the pandemic will have a big impact on how our contracts are written and interpreted moving forward. For those, however, who might not have a choice but to terminate or pause payments, there's going to be plenty of mediations taking place. Um, legal experts are encouraging brands to look at sensible options uh, to any contract-related challenges. Um, but again, you know, it's the 
the total mixed bag of lollies. Brands such as Visa, BHP, Telstra, um, and other top spending or spending brands in sponsorship. Uh, I think we're seeing them extend their deals with rights holders in a in a really good show of faith. Um, we literally just got off the phone with an agency contact out here, and and it's the, the conversation was around. I, I can't wait to see the first brand who chooses to pull out of a deal or doesn't renew because of this, because of the, the sheer damage that that could do to reputation and and brand image. Um, you know, conversely, there's others like Accor and um, Bistro Region, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, in France, who believe that there's genuine grounds for non-payment until the respective sports continue because their deal is reliant on there being live sports so that they can activate various assets. I think the, the sponsorship teams who survive <laughs> this legal onslaught, both, you know, brands and rights holder side will undoubtedly experience sponsorship becoming a, a really solid cog in the marketing mix, mix, I should say, if it wasn't already. I think we, you may have shared it uh, a couple of weeks ago, but Ricardo Fort, head of global sponsorships at Coca-Cola, was recently talking about this and he said, good brands and good campaigns don't just rely on sponsorships. And quite frankly, this scares the living daylights out of me. Because he's right, campaigns really need to be able to exist with or without sponsorship. And that, well, not only me, but it should terrify rights holders selling traditional sponsorship. And I can think of tons of people who say, no, no, we don't, we don't do traditional sponsorship. You know, it's, it's very flexible, it's modern, it's digital, it's this, it's that. But it's, it, quite frankly, it's not. We keep talking about the same thing. But what Ricardo's really talking about there is effectively imploring that you know, brands need to use the assets and the power of association while also arguing that sponsorship itself should never really be the central message for that brand. If I can add to you know some nightmares from that, um, according to Marketing Week, the fact that almost nine out of 10 marketers are now delaying or reviewing both spend and campaign releases in response to COVID-19. Like, wow, <laughs> it's, it, it doesn't help. But then you think, you know, greater fusion of already owned sponsorship assets into the broader marketing strategy can no longer be a really good topic blog or a podcast conversation. It's an absolute must. There's a really good graph. Um, if if anyone looks, uh, potentially put it in the show notes, but in the blog as well, just in terms of, you know, spending put on ice as the coronavirus impact ramps up, it's, it's, it's quite scary. So I think, look, for brands, it's probably taking a deep dive into all the assets you own across each sponsorship deal and ensuring that there's a, a really solid plan of attack for exactly how they're going to be used alongside an existing campaign or or at least helping to leverage the message that you know, you're now trying to get out to an audience. If you have an agency, this is where they really earn their money. If you don't, might be a good time to do a one-off project to protect your investments. You know, the ones that come to the top of mind that are doing really good at the moment, Octagon, MNC, Saatchi, CSM, Gemba, they're all doing really good things at the moment. If I, you know, put my other shoes on from a rights holder perspective, this is the time to really loosen the grip on getting, you know, X amount of dollars in revenue from specific assets and instead move towards finding ways to help sponsors keep the revenue coming in. Um, be proactive in understanding what your sponsors are doing versus the broader market trends. Being able to move assets around and still achieve objectives requires a really deep understanding of your hard costs, your profit margins, 
And what's ultimately in the end, what really needs to be delivered? Well, I think that's some great advice. And I sat down and recorded with Chris Bayless, who will join us on the show in a little while. And he gives a great example of how to do that and how you need to be proactive and take ownership of that situation rather than just sitting back, but also taking the view and and supporting what Ricardo said that good brands and good campaigns don't just that's the key word there for me just rely on sponsorships and so sponsorship is an enabler it it helps you achieve objectives and goals for a brand and so picking up those conversations again and figuring out what you can do rather than taking the hard line about you know you're not fulfilling the contract or we can change the contract or cancelling the contract is not going to help you really in the short term nor will it in in the long term with your relationships with sponsors or if you're a brand your relationships with the rights holders that you do sponsor so speaking of the long term let's round it out and see what you've got for the long term look once we begin to move back to some sort of normality i think we're going to be having a big send-off party for traditional sponsorship deals and we touched on it just before in my opinion we won't see fixed sponsorship fees live for much longer. Quite frankly, I don't believe we can continue to pay for something that's not directly connected to desired results or outcomes. Incentivized deals work for both parties. If the brand achieves results, they're likely to keep paying for more of it. And that means for rights holders, there's a a really good opportunity to scale the deal. And to be clear, this isn't that really cheesy rebate model that came in and out really quickly a couple of years ago. Think of it like an NFL contract, if you like. You know, there's X amount guaranteed to access the audience and then a further dollar amount delivered if specific outcomes and objectives are achieved over a specific time frame. I think, and this is a conversation we've had off offline as well is that there's also scope for us to no longer contract assets the same way um, and this might be a little bit of a, a ball breaker or, and, and feel free to people or for people who, to disagree but perhaps rather than letting the assets rule the contract we can let objectives lead the narrative you know remember return on objective you know in, in theory this could be a total fee divided in pools attributed to asset categories um, but only after they're linked to objectives. So, I mean, obviously, further modelling is, is definitely needed and common sense should absolutely prevail. But look, the, the case in point in this, does it really matter if a brand gets one or two LED rotations on a Friday night at the game? Um, the level of impressions attached to that's not exactly what the brand is looking for when they see value. So I think you know, the, this new thinking should allow us to dynamically assess what is working and adjust as we need to and as we progress. It's certainly given us the impetus and in a lot of cases the the, the thinking time and, and space to, as you say, dynamically assess what is working and adjust because otherwise we would probably just be hurtling along business as usual, nothing changes. Yes, there's wrinkles in what we do but we don't have the time to really do anything about it so we'll just keep doing it the same old way. So there's always silver linings. And in the end, there are some certainties. So will Joe Exotic be president? Maybe that's not a certainty. I would say no, but I'll tell you what, there's some good T-shirts doing the rounds that I think I want to get my hands on. (laughs) Will (laughs) Liverpool earn the Premier League trophy? Uh, I think they should. I think they should. And probably the final one is will sponsorship evolve? Yeah, I think so. And and honestly, I think it'll be for the better. 
you know, lots of people are having conversations about this across the UK, the US, um, throughout Asia, through APAC in, in general. And it's this is probably a really good opportunity for people to start reviewing systems and processes, how they do things, how do we get a little bit smarter in how we put together and execute sponsorship deals. Outstanding. I really enjoyed that chat. Lots of good things to think about. Get the brain ticking over even more if it wasn't. And listeners, if you'd like to read that blog in detail in your own time, just head along to Core Software. Dot com, But also, Daniel, we'd love to hear from people in the industry sharing their experiences, some of the problems, the frustrations, some of the successes that they may be having during this time because the more conversations we have around this, uh, the more support and help that we can give each other. Yeah, absolutely. And I think no, nothing can hurt from a conversation, particularly in this time. Very good. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, mate. Good to talk. Many of you have had to deal with managing events and making decisions on whether to cancel, postpone or pivot those events and some of you have events on your horizon where a decision is going to need to be made fairly soon. Chris Bayless is President and CEO of the Sponsorship Collective but also a founder of the Partnership Conference held annually in Canberra and which was due to be running around about this time. However, like so many of you, Chris and his business partner for the conference had to decide to cancel, postpone or pivot the event. Now, ultimately, the decision to postpone was made, but Chris joins us in the show now to talk in great detail about how they came to that decision, worked through all of the elements with all of the parties and have now gone above and beyond in what they have and will continue to deliver for their partners. Here's Chris. Chris Bayless, welcome back to the show. And I say back because you've been a guest on the show before, twice already. So I think you hold the record for somebody who's been on the show now three times. So you know that there are some icebreaker questions coming. And both of them relate to us all spending more time at home in the house at the moment. So the first one is, what's your favorite board game? Well, first I'll say I'm honored to be the first official three-peat on the podcast. I'm going down in history for, for those who are keeping track. So my, my favorite board game, man, I don't know if I should be admitting this stuff out loud. It makes me seem super geeky. It's called Zombicide. <laughs> and it's like a, it's a very intense game with like figurines and you're, there's been a zombie outbreak and you're fighting against the game and the game behaves to, with certain rules and actually fights back. And, uh, uh, and it's pretty intense. So the, like the, each game is epic and can be a whole day or longer. It is just short of being a role-playing game. I will not commit to being a role-playing game guy, but Zombicide is pretty intense. Well, I wonder whether this inf- helps inform the next icebreaker question, which is what's a show on Netflix that you have binge-watched embarrassingly fast? This doesn't count as a show, but I'd say 80% of the content is on Netflix. The first thing I did when we entered into uh, into, entered in the lockdown in Canada, because I travel a great deal, but I haven't had to, of course, for the last two months, I watched uh, all 23 Marvel movies back to back. Wow. Yeah, starting by release date. And uh, and since there's no easing in sight, I think I'm going to do them again, but chronologically. All right. Well, I didn't have this one on the list, but I'll ask you a third icebreaker question. Considering you did that, which one's your pick for the best one? The best movie for sure, I would say, uh, is Avengers Infinity War. Uh, you can't see it, but my home office is uh, is covered in Hulk stuff. 
So I'm a big fan of the Hulk, but the Hulk movie is not recommended. <laughs> Very good. So Chris, not just the current situation, but unfortunately event organizers can be faced with serious disruption challenges at any time, not just when we're in this current situation, whether they are health issues or maybe they're strikes by those in the supply chain or even natural disasters. That's why I wanted to get you on the show again because you always have such pragmatic advice when your emails come through and and your webinars and events. So let's start with how you are feeling about the sponsorship industry overall right now. It is really easy to focus on the negative of which there is much and I believe believe me I'm not a uh, well I don't think anyone would describe me as an optimist and so I'm, I'm not going to go touchy-feely here on this one but if your attention is narrowly focused on just the quarter just what we're experiencing right now then the only word to describe this for the sponsorship industry is disastrous however I don't think that's the appropriate lens through which to view this. And so if we looked at 2008, we would have described it as a disaster. If we looked at any of our individual events that were impacted by global events, we would describe those as disasters. But when we look back over 12 months or 18 months, depending how we act and react, these things that we experience as disasters, specific to sponsorship and marketing in general, usually aren't. So in other words, the pain is short term, and I would say the pain right now is significant and acute, but I would stop short of saying that this is a disaster to the sponsorship discipline, full stop. I don't don't think that's the case. But if you're narrowly focused on just three to six months, it's disastrous. Everyone has been impacted in the event space, but I wanted to get you on the show to talk about the decision-making process that you and your business partner recently used to determine that you were going to postpone your partnership conference until later in 2020. So firstly, before we talk about the process, can you let the listeners know a little bit about what the partnership conference is all about? So those who know my work or, or, or know what we do at the Sponsorship Collective know that we're pretty focused on sponsorship as a discipline, well, exclusively focused on sponsorship as a discipline, but sponsorship sits within a broader partnership framework. Uh, it could be said, perhaps outside of sport. And in our focus is really all those things that sit outside of sport. And so what we decided to do, we partnered with, uh, or I partnered with Brad Offman, uh, who runs his own consulting practice, and we created the partnership conference, really simply put, to bring both sides of the table to one event to learn from the same sources to hear from the same thought leaders to connect and share and have conversation and so we've got just over 400 brands so the people with the cash and then in this case nonprofits, so charities associations membership orgs sports associations coming basically to act as one industry as peers and and really try to advance the partnership space the partners the partnership spectrum forward the first step when we're faced with decisions like this is to to look at the options that are on the table and it might seem obvious to most people i would assume but what are the options in terms of what we can do i thought so too you know we kind of chuckle like well obviously you're either going to postpone you're going to cancel or you're going to just move ahead. And 
move ahead as is. And so I released a blog post and a YouTube video kind of charting Brad and my decision to do this. And we we decided to postpone way back, it seems way back, but in March. So for for Canada and much of North America, this is before there was an official emergency declared. And so there was no, we didn't have any legal standing to cancel our event and get a refund. We made the decision to postpone despite the fees, despite the impact. So at the time, what is such an obvious triage now at the time, people weren't even considering. It was sort of this will all blow over or wishful thinking or whatever we, whatever decision-making process people were using. But what is still happening and what I find somewhat alarming is that is that there's still a head in the sand approach to this decision making process where many events either waited and had their events canceled on them or in the fall their events are coming or September to December which is the the fall for us north americans their events are coming up and they're still not really considering these options and and what i thought was so troubling to see is that people were considering moving forward as if as if the event could still happen as a lack of decision that was the path of least resistance and the point i wanted to make was no decision being made is the equivalent of you looking at the landscape looking at the calendar and deciding yes we want to run an event at this time and if you take the decision in that way, at least for Brad and I, the answer was obvious. We would never run an event at the end of April. In fact, it would have been last Monday that we had the event at the time of recording. And I was supposed to be in Disney right now celebrating an, an event well run with my family. And I am not there. So the, the problem is that I think people are considering business as usual to be the lack of a decision when actually it's the choice to move forward and run an event during a troubling time and potentially have cancellation forced upon you. If cancellation is forced or somebody decides, makes that conscious decision, takes it, takes ownership of it and, and actually makes a decision to cancel it, where do you think that leaves rights holders in terms of activations and especially refunds, especially whether a refund is needed or warranted and whether that needs to be a full or a partial refund? Like, How do they work through that? The first thing we did is talk to our lawyer. So we're about to disrupt a contract. If we cancel, we need to talk to our lawyer. The legal advice we got is a canceled event is a material enough change to the contract that we would be that we would be found to have breached said contract and a full refund is warranted. So if your contract is written like ours was written, and it probably is, and you plan to cancel the event, not postpone the event, not morph the event into something else, which I would actually argue would be considered potentially could it could be considered a material breach. If you're not running the event, you owe a refund. Even if you're going to buy a car and you go to pick up that car and the auto dealership simply doesn't have a car for you, they don't get to keep the money even if they have a really good reason for not having your car. And we're seeing this in Canada right now, major lawsuits against the airline companies because no one can fly. And the airline companies are not offering refunds because it, quote, wasn't their fault. The problem is people didn't receive what they paid for. So if you're canceling your event, you should do so with the expectation of a full 100% refund. If you are running a season, like many of our sport, our sport colleagues, depends how deep into the season you are, then you would rely on your valuation to determine how much of a refund. If you're going by the letter of your contract and what could be defensible. But if your goal, again, is not to focus on the quarter, 
but to recover and be strong over the course of a year or two, then I would use a framework to decide what's right for my sponsor and offer them what they agree is appropriate, what is legally defensible. Because once this ends, you don't want to be the property that every sponsor hates. So if a rights holder wants to try and retain some income from a sponsorship, clearly as much as possible because it impacts cash flow. What sort of options are there aside from a refund? I mean, you alluded to there around seeing what they can deliver, but are there other options on the table that can be explored? If the approach that you're taking through this process is how do I retain as much money as possible, you're in trouble. The odds are stacked against you quite badly. And that is a common and understandable approach. We are salespeople. We live or, well, we don't live or die by our sales, but we keep our jobs and feed our families by our, by our sales. And so it's easy to think of it in that, in that way. Early on, Brad and I took a step back and I keep, I keep coming back to this as kind of the case study because I want to be clear, this was right for us, but this isn't necessarily what you should do as a listener. You really have to get your legal advice, get your accounting advice, review your contracts, talk to your sponsors multiple times. But anyway, so Brad and I came to the conclusion that only a live event serves the purpose. And so we wanted to reschedule, not cancel. Then we spoke to our sponsors. And instead of saying, we would like to keep as much money as possible, how can we keep it? We came to them and said, you tell us how we can be a marketing partner through all of this. You tell us how we can be the best investment you made all year once all of this is done. And if we can deliver, we're going to. And if we cannot deliver, we will give you a full refund no matter what assets we've already de delivered on. That's irrelevant. Even though legally, it was a defensible position. So if your goal is to keep the money, your primary goal must be to help achieve the outcomes of your sponsors. Sponsorship is a marketing discipline. Marketing is measured in usually in sales or at least the suite of marketing outcomes, not in how much money a property retains. So while that is your your lag measure, your lag goal, that is not how you should approach this philosophically when you're trying to negotiate with your sponsors. There'll be some people listening at this point in time in May 2020 who have events towards the back end of the year and they, they're sitting there trying to still play that waiting game. Will the restrictions ease wherever they are in the world and I'll be able to run that event? And so they may still choose to get to move forward but they will need to be mindful because i'm guessing that it's it's an ever-changing situation with businesses making sponsorship and, and wider marketing decisions governments and and governing bodies particularly in sports making decisions that allow us to run events or not run events whether they're actually competitions or events for our sponsors so i'm wondering what else people need to be mindful of as, as we move through possibly maybe the next six months that could impact an event because they still need to be responsive right they, they can't just leave it for another four months and then go hey our event's on yeah exactly and so th i think that's a that's a, a really good point and important nuance that you just made and so for Brad and I, when we picked a date in December, we rewrote our new contract with our venue to say that we would have at least three months of the okay from the government to run events over 250 people. That seems to be the cutoff for us. So we needed at least three months, 
now we're in a position where we're 70% of our tickets were sold when we pulled the plug on our event. We're sold out on sponsorship and all of our sponsors came back. So at this stage, the only thing we have to worry about is booking a venue and moving forward. If you have not begun to sell tickets yet, you are likely to see not a great reaction to your ticket sales efforts. And so the our philosophy was we needed three full months to properly promote and sell the remaining 30% of our, our tickets. And that worked for us in our marketing cycle. So you have to start with the end in mind if you're choosing a date and your drop dead date. So how many months do you need to sell tickets? And then ask yourself, how long does the public need to feel confident to buy tickets to an event, to travel to an event? And so if that means for you that restrictions have to be lifted for six weeks, before you enter your marketing cycle so that you can see how the world is reacting or how your world is reacting, then that gives you your timeline. And so if the event falls within, let's say in this fictional event, it's four and a half months out, and we are not at the benchmark that you need to be, then I would pull the plug on the event and postpone it. Those who held their breath, hoped, and waited till the last minute to change their events got the worst pick of the dates for a reschedule if, if any dates were available. They were hammered with refunds, many of them, and their sponsors were equally unhappy because they were finding out last minute. So before any of our sponsors were told they weren't allowed to travel, many or many of our speakers were coming from the US and Canada, across the country, before they were even told they couldn't travel, we had already had already done this. So we were seen as proactive. So in other words, or to to make a long answer considerably longer, you, you have to know what your marketing cycle for ticket sales, for sponsorship activation looks like. For us, we know that's around three months. And uh, we have it marked in our calendars right now. Brad and I are going to have a meeting exactly three months before. And we're going to either move forward or we're not. And that's the decision that we'll make at that time. And we'll live with the results. I love that advice around working backwards from your date and what you feel comfortable around timeline. Still a lot of guesswork around what's going to happen and you've got to probably guess what how people are going to react and what you think is going to feel comfortable, but at least you're doing that groundwork. And you alluded to before that you're in talks with your sponsors and, and you've had a lot of these talks already to do even more promotion and some, and some digital activations to ensure that your sponsors get the outcomes they paid for. In that case, the new activations, are they outside the scope of the original agreement? Are you charging sponsors for those benefits? And I'm curious about you moving the event and some of those things you would have been delivering around the event. And now you're going to deliver over and above. Are you going to be talking to sponsors about expanding their commitment or that's just a, we're just putting it out there guys, just to help. I get that question quite a lot from our clients who are who are wondering the same thing. Is this an opportunity to make some more money? Is this appropriate to be asking for more cash from my sponsors? And so the the approach that we took again was not what's the best quarter look like. The way we're looking at this is in 5 years from now we really had this conversation in 5 years from now what do we want the event to look like? What do we want this conference to look like? already a major flagship event in Canada. The only one like it, it is going up in attendance 50% every year. It is, it's amazing beyond our wildest expectations. And so we asked the question in five years from now, how will this event look? How will this conference look? How will our digital presence look? Who will our partners be? 
And then we looked back and said, how would those people and that event and that brand in five years from now act right now? Because the future you is based on your current actions. And this is really the the approach that we took to our business. And we are the direct recipients and the direct risk holders to this business. So we are dealing with our own cash and our own ability to pay our bills. And even so, we took that approach. And so when we reached out to our sponsors, we asked the question, really, as I phrased it, how can we be your best partner right now? And how can we help you achieve your goals? And what we heard from our our existing sponsors, they range from multi, multi, multi-million, million dollar a year banks to local consultants. So the, the full range. And they said, you know, everybody else is just telling us they're going to run a digital event and throw a logo on a slide. And we really don't care at all. We don't want that. It has no value to us. We tolerate logo placement. We don't want logo placement. So they were so happy that we had asked that question that they simply told us what they wanted. And so everyone gave us kind of their best case scenario. And the way that, that uh, we framed it, I basically said to each sponsor, send me an email with all of the things that you want, that you deem essential, so that this is your best marketing investment all year. And I'm telling you now, everything you put in that email, we're going to say yes to. So let's move forward in good faith. We don't need to negotiate. Whatever you say you want, we're going to do. And then we're just going to figure out how the heck we're going to do it. No cost to you unless there are hard costs on top of it. And so all of our sponsors came back with their best case scenario. One in particular said, our biggest challenge is that April 27th marks, we were planning on sales as a result of sponsoring your conference. And so how can we make those sales happen? And so then we worked together on an interesting research report and uh, a webinar where we got 800 people to show up instead of, quote, just the 400 who come to our conference. And then we did some contesting. So basically, by taking this approach and thinking long term, it didn't make sense to charge people an extra thousand bucks, 2000 bucks. Instead, we took the approach at the end of all of this, when we've over delivered, we now have earned the right to say, let's do a multi year agreement now that you've seen what we can do, right? We're partners, we're not just abandoning you when things get tough. I love that story. It's great. And Chris, that's the whole reason I wanted to get you back on the podcast because I wanted to hear a real case study, some of those warts and all stories about how you work through it rather than just listening to some consultant who's sitting in their home office and they, and they just open up Word and, and punch out a, a blog or an article and get it up on LinkedIn. And, and they're talking about things they've never really implemented and then posting it on social media and sending it on their, their database. I wanted to hear it from somebody real. So thanks so much for sharing that. As such, looking back and framing it as sponsorship during times of crisis, what are the biggest lessons you learned? Well, first, I want to say, I don't know how one gets one of these ivory tower sponsorship jobs where you just twist your mustache and (laughs) give advice that may or may not work. But to your listenership, if you have such a role, uh, sign me up. But until then, I'm stuck in the trenches, battling away. And so what really struck me in all of this is that those who are practicing best practice sponsorship not as defined by me, but as defined by my colleagues and I, all of those people in this space who are speaking from true experience. We talk about building your inventory, 
doing good discovery with your prospects, understanding who your audience is and really niching or niching down for American friends, really getting deep into your audience data, doing your valuation, proving your, your ROI, fulfillment reports, regular communications, that recipe, that process, that tried and true approach to sponsorship is how we retained 100% of our sponsors, is how our clients who have multi-year, multi-million dollar naming rights and presenting rights for events, how they retain their sponsors. Those of our clients who opted for the just hope this goes away or hope the sponsor understands lost sponsors. Those who use best practice sponsorship lost less sponsors. So there was still some damage. But so the learning from this, interestingly, is that those principles that we're all talking about, that we do our best to implement in practice, apply now more than ever. And those who are using that approach, it creates a situation where they can do what we did. It, there was no guessing what our sponsors want. We'd already determined that what they wanted was an outcome. And we focused everything on delivering that outcome. We had one sponsor say, we determine success at an event if we get three requests for proposals for their, for their services. We don't measure how many we close because that's up to our sales team. We just need to be asked to bid on three projects. So we can't run our event in April. So Brad and I made three introductions within our network. And that turned into three requests for proposals. So we satisfied the outcomes of our sponsors, but we could only do that because we knew what they were. So best practice sponsorship applies now more than ever, which is good news because it actually doesn't require a significant shift, at least as far as I can tell, in the philosophy of sponsorship, in the practice, in valuation, et cetera. It is really about coming back to those principles and those who are avoiding the principles or afraid to talk to their sponsors, they're suffering. Funnily enough, that's probably why it's called best practice. Now, one option that we didn't touch on too much is running a virtual event, probably a bit too hard to pivot an existing massive in-person event to a, a virtual one. I mean, yes, it can be done, but it's probably not going to be great. But now that people have had a, a few weeks to, th to think about all of this stuff and we're not as in as much shock as we were a few weeks ago and still no clear end date in sight, many are actually looking at virtual events, whether that's right or, or, or not. Is a virtual event now just as simple as scheduling a couple of webinars and, and Q&A sessions? I think that there's an interesting and pervasive belief that people go to conferences, quote, just for the content. And all of those who are switching from live to digital conferences are learning that that is not true. I've run online events, digital events for five or six years, and we still opted for a live conference because they're important. If you run a race or a marathon or a triathlon, I don't know how you make that virtual and get the same value. So, so the question is, is it as simple as running a webinar and some live Q&A? Uh, technically, yes, it is. That will mimic what you believe a conference is for, delivering content. But YouTube has already covered that and has done so far better. So the, the question, can we just do this digital stuff? You absolutely can. But if you're asking the question, will sponsors get the same benefit simply by delivering content and just letting them speak immediately before the webinar starts? The answer is a resounding and overwhelming 
No, you have just reduced sponsorship to basic advertising. You're going to have to follow CPM best practices, right? Cost per mile or cost per thousand, which is like three to 15 cents per person on your on your webinar. It's not great unless you happen to have 150,000 people tuning in, then it's just okay. So technically speaking, running a, a webinar, running a, a virtual conference, very simple, and the risk is very low. From an experiential perspective, from a sponsorship perspective, from an activation perspective, it leads a lot to be desired. Chris, virtual events will be unfamiliar to a fair amount of people because it just hasn't been part of, of their job. Is how you get sponsorship for a virtual event, if running virtual events is is either definitely the right way, regardless of whether we're in this situation, or pivoting to a virtual event is actually a good decision. Is how you get sponsorship for a virtual event really that different to how you get sponsorship for an in-person event? Yeah, the answer is definitely no. The It's not different. Uh, the the process of selling sponsorship is always the same uh, in, in my experience, which is knowing your audience, building your inventory, then having a conversation with your sponsors, moving to your valuation tactics, activation, fulfillment, renewal, repeat, right? That is the process for sponsorship. And it produces the same results. You either have a, a prospect who's interested in your audience and you can help them achieve their goal outcomes. The form of sponsorship, how it looks is irrelevant. It's the outcomes. And so we get a lot of questions from people. What are some digital activations I can use? And what they're really asking is, what do I swap my samples at a sample table for that I could just sell to sponsors? And one good thing and there are not that many, but one good thing coming out of this is that it's making people realize that they have to ask more detailed questions about outcomes. You can't just leave it up to your sponsors to get to activate it in secrecy and, and never really know what they're, they're actually doing. When you're delivering digitally, you really have to be laser focused on outcomes because they can measure the outcomes. If you're sending sponsor or sorry, your traffic to a sponsor page, they have Google Analytics set up to tell exactly how many people came over from your site to theirs. They know. Uh, and then they know how many of them convert to their online forms and convert to buying a product. So digital is highly measurable. And so so as we move into the, the digital space in particular, we really have to rely on those principles. But for a, like a big list of stuff you can sell your sponsors in the digital space, anyone who tells you they have it, you should run from those people. So let's say a rights holder decides to push forward with a virtual event. From a sponsorship's perspective, what are some considerations people need to keep in mind as they proceed with the planning and the organization and the hosting of their virtual event? Is it is there more of an onus on working with sponsors and, and actually figuring out the activations because it is new and, and we need to work together and be nimble. We're not just putting on the hospitality suite or the signs at the fields or the badges on on the uniforms. And because as you rightly said, digital is so much easier to measure. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, if you're going to switch from live to virtual, no matter what you choose, even if you choose to move forward, recognizing that that is in itself a choice, you need to talk to your lawyer about your obligations. And so just quote, switching from a live event to a virtual event could be a breach of contract still. And even if it isn't, 
it might be highly irritating to your to your uh, to your sponsors. So for me, I have a really strong digital presence. I go to live events to get something unique and specific that I when I'm a sponsor. So to just convert a live event to a digital event, you better be able to do significantly better than I could do if I invested that same amount of money in promoting my own event. And so I do think that uh, having having said all of that, it's very important to understand what your sponsors are trying to achieve. And because digital is so measurable, you have to get those numbers. How many people do you want on this webinar? What type of people do you want on this webinar? What action do you want them to take immediately after the webinar wraps? And then you have to, if it's a, if it's a webinar, then you have to incentivize that and measure that on behalf of your sponsor. So, you know, I told you we got 800 people on our, our webinar for this sponsor. Uh, their goal was around 300, 350 people. So we made it our goal that we would not stop until we hit double that. If they're interested in having people do a free trial of their software, then it's, then it's, up to us to make sure, not that we just let people know that there's an option to do so, we have to actually make it worth their while. And the same question, how many people do you want to try your software? And when we asked that question, the answer was, was pretty clear. Actually, we don't care how many people try it. We care that we sell five, right? It's, it's trying software isn't as relevant as buying. So we have our metric and we move forward with it. Because in a digital in a digital space, it's so measurable, your discovery questions, your negotiations should be really laser focused on how they're going to measure. And then you must strive to to deliver more than what you've agreed to. Some great discussion and examples there on, as you say, being laser focused on the numbers. Virtual events are obviously on the rise, many sponsorship Professionals like everyone are juggling the joys of working from home and and probably homeschooling and or sharing office space with their partners or their housemates. You and I spoke about, before we hit the record button, about dogs barking and things like that. People aren't in their routine and and the boundaries are now blurred even further between the office and, and home. You spoke about that laser focus on numbers and that was great advice if that works out okay but what happens if you've secured sponsorship for your virtual event but the turnout numbers and the flow through revenue are unexpectedly bad what can you do like any sponsorship opportunity or sponsorship agreement gone wrong you have two options you have a full refund or refund the balance of what you didn't deliver or you can create another opportunity to make up for where you didn't deliver and so it is like any other sponsorship. However, if you're going digital and your event has never been digital before, this is why I keep saying you're not actually creating a digital version of your event. You're creating a brand new event. And when we create brand new events with no history, with no proof of success, potentially without a marketing budget, because people who are new to the digital space assume it will be as easy to sell digital products as it is to sell live products, Everyone I know who has sold digital products knows full well, including myself, that I couldn't be further from the truth, right? People are cynical. People are resistant to buying things online. So all that to say, your first time running a digital event, it's a first year event. And so the way you sell that is by having a very clear marketing strategy, marketing plan. You're going to have to spend some money to get people to come to your event. And... 
you want to, typically I recommend people in a first year event, do your valuation based on your best guess, your best expectation of who will come, offer a two to one or a three to one ROI using a, a, a valuation process, and then cut it in half so that you are being incredibly conservative with your sponsors. I don't know who said this originally, but I, I've heard it from my, my pal, Larry, the sponsorship guy in Texas. Sponsors are not investors. They are marketers. And so they're not coming in at the ground level of your event. They, are, they, they want marketing return. So if you're going to run a first-year event, you've got to make sure that, that there's something in it for those sponsors to take on that risk. A pointed question with the changes in how we are all working at the moment. There's lots of us giving out recommendations around the the tech that can help people on, on lots of different fronts. You've run virtual events for a, for a while and, and they're clearly more of a focus now. What tech do you recommend for hosting virtual event? What's your favorite? So my favorite as a participant is Zoom, uh, but typically the digital events that I've gone to they're smaller events and we do breakouts and stuff like I've, I'm part of a business mastermind. And, uh, and so we use zoom all the time to do our breakouts between live sessions. So I like zoom a lot. I've used easy webinar, ever webinar, go to webinar, webinar jam. <laughs> and, uh, I would say the standouts to me are zoom and go to webinar and go to webinar. If you're going to, we use go to webinar now because it lets you have over a thousand people at the event. And it lets you, I think it's a thousand, it lets you register 5,000 people. And so for, for the sponsorship collective, that's, that's where we're at in terms of our volume. So we use GoToWebinar, but Zoom is not to be trifled with. So it depends on the, on the size of your event, but also the functionality. And, and uh, Zoom is nice if you want to give people the chance to network and, and do breakouts. Chris, to wrap things up, when we start to get back to normal, whatever normal is going to look like as we start to move towards it. And whenever that is, get your crystal ball out for me. What will have changed forever in regards to sponsorship? I am going to be an optimist on this one. I hope what's going to change forever is that people have now learned, people being rights holders, sponsorship seekers have now learned that what they thought was valuable to sponsors is not. And so, you know, we will hear from sponsors oh, I'm just here because it's of the community or to support the industry or just to be seen. And we accept these lies <laughs> at face value. This is not what sponsors are after. We accept it at face value because it lets us off the hook. And what's happened is trying to switch to digital, trying to, to reschedule events, people are going back to their sponsors and saying, but don't worry, you're still supporting. I had, I had one client say, we asked all of our sponsors to just turn their cash into a donation because they only care about supporting the, the industry, right? Except not one sponsor agreed and every single one asked for a refund in response to that, that request. So I think what's happening is that people are seeing and hearing and learning that the assumptions they had about what their sponsors want were incorrect. And going forward, I think what will change is good discovery, proper sponsorship agreements that are not focused on vanity metrics, and uh, or rather sponsorship proposals. And third, I think we're going to see a lot better contracts between sponsors, rights holders, and I will say venues, because that has been a real problem for, for people who never expected to have an emergency to deal with. And you've given up your time again to come on the show and share your amazing advice. So let's give you a, a chance to plug the conference. When is it now and how do people get involved to find out more about it? 
we are laser focused on Canadian content. So I'm sorry, rest of the world, stay tuned. We are, we're coming at you with, uh, with more global content, but the partnership conference right now is scheduled for December 17, 18. And for those of you who don't know, December in Canada, in particular in Toronto, is horrible. That is not the time to come to Canada to come to a conference, but we wanted to push the date out as far as possible to give a chance for all of this stuff to blow over. But I say we are tentatively scheduled for December because we have our decision-making matrix that might mean we're going to end up having to push it out to the spring. And so uh, the easiest way, if you want to find out more information, as always, is just sponsorshipcollective.com and uh, drop me a note, which you can do right on the website. Chris, as I said at the top of the show, you're always full of of great and pragmatic advice. If people want to get in touch and, and stay up to date, find out more about what you do, keep the conversation going, where can they go? How can they stay in touch? Come find me on my website, sponsorshipcollective.com. I don't know if this is a bragging right or not, but uh, but we've passed around 250,000 words on the blog. So tons of free information. I'm told it's something like six business books. So I guess I've wasted my time writing free blog content. I should have published a bunch of books and, uh, and then joined the ivory tower. But, uh, but yeah, come, check, come find me on my website. You can, uh, you can drop me a line there and, uh, and read all of our great free content. Outstanding. Chris Bayless, President and CEO of the Sponsorship Collective. Thank you so much for taking us inside events and sponsorship during a time of crisis. Yeah, happy to. Always a pleasure to have Chris on the show, and I trust that his advice and experiences can help you in making decisions around your events and the sponsorships related to them. As Chris mentioned, he has a plethora of amazing information and content on his website, thesponsorshipcollective.com. Just head there to find that content, or you can find and connect with him on LinkedIn. Just search for Chris Bayless. That's B-A-Y-L-I-S. And of course, if you want to attend an outstanding event, Event, check out the partnershipconference.com, which, as Chris said, has been postponed to December 15 to 16 in Toronto, Canada. That's a wrap for episode 83. Thank you so much for joining me. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. And if you do, I'll make sure I give you a shout out just like I did for Ian. And if you want to connect with Core Software's commercial director, APAC, Daniel Collier-Hill, you can catch him on daniel.collier, C-O-L-L-I-E-R, at coresoftware.com or search for him on LinkedIn as well. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship listening to the show for more episodes and to subscribe to the show search for inside sponsorship on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts also for more free industry specific resources including blogs ebooks white papers and our insights newsletter head to coresoftware.com finally be sure to follow core software on twitter and linkedin